welcome everybody to the University of Applied Research and Development in our video cast. We're delighted to have Professor David Carl Wilson, who is the Professor of Philosophy at Webster University. He's also the Dean Emeritus of the College of Arts and Sciences. Welcome, David. Good to be here. Thank you, Craig. I'd love for you to share with us your role and what you do. Okay, well, my role now is, is um, I'm a Professor of Philosophy at Webster. I teach in the philosophy department and in the management program. Uh, I specialize in social philosophy, and I have a special interest in, in uh, the philosophy of leadership and the philosophy. I teach in the management program. I typically teach about the relationship between corporate leadership and social responsibility. Um, when I teach in the philosophy department, I teach a variety of things, but typically I teach um, ethics, political philosophy, and I'm just rolling out a cross-listed course, which will be offered to both management students and philosophy students on the philosophy of leadership and management. I see that you published a guide to good reasoning. What was your motivation behind the book? Behind the book? Well, I've, um, one thing about my life is whenever I get engaged with something, I start thinking philosophically about it. And so I, I was very involved with religion when I was young and I got involved in a philosophy program to think philosophically about it. And so I wrote a book about the philosophy of religion. And then when I was at UCLA, I was teaching a lot as this big reasoning course with 300 students. And I started thinking philosophically about that. And so I wrote this book, a guide to good reasoning 20 years ago. And I'll, I will, I, I didn't expect this, but I'll put in a plug. Uh, the second edition is about to come out from the university of Minnesota. And I'm not even going to make money on it. It's online and it's free. It's updated online and free, but it's got a really good critical response. And Minnesota is putting it out. It'll be out in just a, just a couple of weeks, a guide to good reasoning. And by the way, and that actually connects into um, uh, the topic tonight. So, I mean, as well as the, the religion and as well as the, the uh, reasoning, uh, much of my life I've, I've ended up in leadership positions. And in high school and college and graduate school and then in my career, I've tended to be stuck in leadership positions, probably because I show up and I re return my messages and I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to get my ego out of the way. And so I, I ended up having a, a long stretch of my professional life in a leadership position. And I started thinking philosophically about that. So that's sort of what brought me here is the same reason I wrote the book on reasoning and wrote my book on religion. I just like to think philosophically about what I'm doing. I'd love for you to share with us your thoughts on leadership, your, your own philosophy of leadership. Uh, my, I believe you said, what are my thoughts on my own philosophy of leadership? Okay. Uh, sorry about the poor connection, but well, you know, I, when I first, Became I left UCLA to, to go to Webster as a dean. Uh, Webster is a very different sort of university, but it's a worldwide university. And it was, it was a huge and complex operation I was in charge of with people all over the world and programs all over the world. And a lot of people reporting to me. And I felt the need to understand better the, what I was up to as a leader. So I started reading books on leadership. And you know, the first book that I read was good. I liked it. Then I read another book, and I can't remember exactly which one it was because I've read so many since. 
But either it was exactly the same as the first book or is exactly the opposite as the first book. Because it seems as though I quickly became very frustrated with all the literature out there on leadership, given that um, it, it, it is typically not subjected to very much rigor. So right away, I recognized that, well, you know, some of the books are going to tell you that a leader should be charismatic. And another book is going to tell you that a leader should be you know, a person of the people who was accepted by the people. Or a leader should be a unifier. No, a leader should be a little disruptive to generate innovation. Or a leader should be an optimist. No, a leader should be a realist. A leader should be passionate. No, a leader should be rational. A leader should be out in front of everybody. No, the leader should be uh, the humble servant in shepherding from the back. The leader should be decisive. No, the leader should be a consensus builder. So there was just, there seemed to be so much disorder uh, and so much lack of real clear argumentation. That's why I began to think hard about it, looking at what a lot of the great philosophers have said about leadership, but also thinking it through myself from the ground up. So I'll just give you one example of some of my own philosophical results. And it, it, it shouldn't be surprising, but I, but I hope that people find it to be clarifying in any event. Um, because philosophers think at the conceptual level. Philosophers are doing work that, that uh, has to do with questions that you can't really answer empirically. So we're thinking through what we mean when we make certain sorts of claims and use certain sorts of concepts. So in thinking through the concepts of, leader, concepts of leadership, here's just one um, example of what I think is a very useful insight. Uh, my students pay money for their classes, so I like to use expensive words sometimes so they feel they're getting their money's worth. So I'm gonna use the word ontology. Now, ontology is a, is a fun word. It just means, for philosophers, it means, what is it that really exists in the world? And so, Leadership, in a way, has to do with social ontology. What is it that exists socially in the world? What do we create when we create, for example, an organization and we create a leadership position? Well, one thing's clear. A position exists socially. The leader is a leader in an organization. The leader has a position. And I would call a position a diatomic molecule. That is to say, it's a molecule with two atoms in it. One of the atoms is responsibility, and one of the atoms is rights. And you put leadership responsibility, which is the, which is the responsibility to lead the organization in the right direction, to move the organization in the right direction. And the rights are what the leader has that enable him or her to carry out those responsibilities. So then you get the really interesting question to my mind, and that is, which one of these is more fundamental? Conceptually, philosophically, does one of these have priority over the other one? And uh, my conclusion is that almost everybody gets this upside down. In fact, when I first started working on this, I defined leadership as the power to move an organization ahead. And we all talk about leadership as somebody taking power or assuming power or having a transfer of power or taking the reins or taking control. But I think it's unambiguous that responsibility is conceptually more fundamental. 
And I can give one of them is philosophers use a, a sort of mental uh, thought experiment called a state of nature experiment. And if you imagine that a group of people are shipwrecked and they land on an island and they don't know each other, they don't have any set of laws, they have no organization, uh, what are they going to do? How are they going to behave to get things in shape? So imagine that they've got some water and imagine that they've got some food and they're going to try to figure out what to do with it. Now, they can decide, the first thing we're going to do is we like that guy over there and we're going to give him all the power over the water and food. He can do with it whatever he wants to. No, we won't do that. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to say, we want somebody to have the responsibility to be sure that this water and food is distributed appropriately. And then we're going to decide what kind of rights they need and what kind of power they need in order to do the job properly. So just the state of nature argument shows that we would always assign responsibilities first. I'll give you another example. And that is when we, when we uh, look at mismatches between rights and responsibilities among leaders, we look at the two different mismatches in two different ways. If a leader has the rights and is amassing power, has the responsibility, is amassing power and is, is far exceeding the amount of power that he or she needs in order to carry out the responsibilities, is, is installing people in positions who, who are yes men. Uh, who is taking control of budgets that normally he or she doesn't have, uh, is annexing new organizations. But this goes far beyond what is needed for the responsibility to be carried out. We stop trusting that person. We suspect that person of corruption. It makes that person have a much more difficult time carrying out his or her responsibilities. So that mismatch causes a problem for leadership. Now think of the other mismatch. Think of somebody... We've all seen this happen. We've, we've, we've seen a leader standing in front of a microphone, in front of the press, trying to account for something catastrophic that's happened in his or her company. And we know that it wasn't her fault. We know there was nothing that she could have done about it. But she stands there and she says, sincerely, I take responsibility for this. Now, that's a case in which the responsibility outstrips the power. But we don't think there's something wrong with that. We think that this is a person who gets it. This is a person who understands that responsibility comes first in leadership. I'm not saying power and rights aren't important, but this comes first. So it, I think there's an important practical lesson here as well. And that is anytime you go into a leadership position, you know, understand that the foundation of the responsibility, the, the, um, one of the most important leaders of the 20th century is Mahatma Gandhi. And Gandhi once said, the rights of the Ganges flow down from the responsibilities of the Himalayas. You can have a mountain without a river, but you can't have a river without a change in elevation without a mountain. You can have responsibilities without rights, but you can't have rights without responsibilities. So that's one important thing that I think I've 
have been able to get some insight on. It must be very, very difficult to manage and meet responsibilities without access to any rights or the ability to use rights. Um, well, I think that that's an extremely important point. And when I say that the responsibilities are more foundational, I don't mean that one should eschew power. I mean, it's certainly extremely important to have sufficient power to carry out your job. The, the thing is you can divide power into two categories. You can talk about the leadership ability that you brought into your position. And that's your own personal power, you might say, your leadership ability. And you still have that available to you. Right? And then you have the official powers that come with a position. And so, I mean, there are many challenges. There's the challenge that, that um, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you have to be very careful about the corruption problems. Uh, there's, the, the, there's the problem of having too little power and you're feckless or too much power and you're not trusted. Uh, there has to be sort of a golden mean, an Aristotelian golden mean of the right amount of power. And there's the problem that it's just easy to abuse it. Sometimes it's very easy if you've got power to um, force somebody to do something because they're afraid of you because they know about your power rather than actually motivating them, them to do it. And of course, when you actually force somebody to do it, they're not following you. They're, they're thinking of you as a tyrant. Do you think the motivation really does exist inside of people? I'll ask you to say that again. Do you think that motivation really does exist inside of people intrinsically? Uh, wait a minute, I'm the philosopher. You're not supposed to be asking the philosophical questions. <laughs> I think that we, we all understand the difference between being in a role of motiv motivating somebody to do something and being in a role of coercing somebody to do something. So we almost don't even need to ask the question, uh, at least not at this point of the conversation, so what really is motivation? We understand that when somebody voluntarily does something that they want to do, that's very different from involuntarily or grudgingly doing something that somebody else wants them to do. So, you know, in, in, in the real world, outside of an organizational setting, when somebody engages in leadership, when they don't have the responsibility, they just do it. They motivate people. Uh, we understand what that is. Um, and if they do it often enough, they might be asked to take on the responsibility, right? But if they don't have the responsibility, just do it. Then we can very clearly see that motivation has to do with being persuaded of the attraction of a goal, uh, being shown how to achieve a goal, being inspired to achieve that goal. Um, and so we, we understand that. And sometimes we forget when that leadership moves into an organizational setting that then you might have the power to force people to do something, but that no longer is actual leadership. So then we can judge the quality of leadership by the actions of the leader and their use of responsibilities and rights? Well, the... the, the what do you judge when you judge leadership? Um, when you're not 
responsible. You just judge leadership by whether anybody's following you or not. That's leadership, voluntarily following. Once you become responsible, then you have an organization and it becomes extremely uh, complex because now you have an organization. So you have these individuals and it continues to be important that you properly motivate them, but you have an organization and an organization transcends the individuals. An organization continues to exist even if you shuffle all the people and the people have a place they want to go. And this sounds a little odd, but an organization has a place it wants to go. Uh, if, if it's a university, it wants to educate people. If it's a hospital, it wants to heal people. Um, if it's the military, it wants to, wants to uh, provide security. Um, if it's um, the most popular place of all, um, the, the goal of a, of a firm is it wants to maximize shareholder value, okay? So, but, the, but it's not always the case. That's where the people want to go. So one of the really complex jobs of the leader is to make sure that the organization is moving in the right direction. And that includes both the individuals in it and the organization itself. So, that, so if you don't do that, if the organ, individuals don't want to do that, then you can either bully them or force them, and that's not leadership, or you can fail to reach the organizational goal. That's not leadership. Or you can synchronize the two. And that's the real challenge of organizational leadership is whether you synchronize the two so that the members of the organization want to go in the direction that the organization wants to go in. So often that means repurposing the organizational goal. Uh, if, the, if the organizational goal is to maximize shareholder value or to make a lot of money, that's not going to be something that inspires a lot of the members because they're making money for somebody else. And money is ultimately only of an instrumental value anyway. It's of enormous instrumental value. And I'm not, I'm not uh, against that goal, but I'm saying that goal needs to have a purpose added to it. It needs to be repurposed so that they see that even if part of the goal is making money, they're doing something that resonates with their humanity by doing this. So Walt Disney made more money than most do, but he always said that what his organization was up to was making people happy. Hmm, love that. Dr. David, just in the couple of minutes that we have left, for people that are aspiring to leadership or aspiring to that next level of leadership, what would you encourage them to think about or experiences to build into their life before they go to that next level? Well, of course, I'll say that, that um, they, should, they need to show up and they need to respond to their emails and they need to get their ego out of the way. Um, I, I will say, though, leadership studying and leadership development is very weird in a certain way. Now, what would you say to me if I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to start training people how to be winners because everybody wants to be a winner. I think you might say winners at what? You need to know what they're winning at because there's, you know, as many things you can, you can win at as, as, um, as there are, you know, game boards and sports and competitions all over the world. So leadership is very much like that because every organization is different. 
Every leader is different. Every employee is different. And so what I would say is what I would say to the one who wants to be a winner, develop as much expertise as you can possibly develop in the area where you expect to be a leader. And once you have the expertise, you will be much better equipped to take you know, these conceptual lessons about leadership and to show up and return your email and get your ego out of the way and take responsibility and handle power right and move your organization in the right direction. Love that. Dr. David, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you giving your wisdom and sharing your philosophy on leadership with us. Thank you so much, Craig.